Good morning, Bethany. <laughs> um, if you would turn to Genesis 46, um, just like TriMet, where I work, um, we have split shifts when we first start. We're having split scripture today. <laughs> so we are going from chap- uh, chapter 46, verses 1 through 7, and then 26 through 34. So I'll give you a second to get there. All right. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. So I got spared saying all those names. Let's move down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men were shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our Genesis Life of Joseph, a story of pain and providence today. And remember, we have just had this great reunion that took place between Joseph and his brothers after 20-some years, where he had tested them by alternating sun, gracious actions and attitudes, and frost, tests that he put them through to help them grow, 
to break them open to the grace of God, this alternating sun and frost. And we saw a real transformation in Judah and the brothers last week as Judah stepped forward as a substitutionary sacrifice. Take my life instead of my brother's. A transformation had taken place. And now because of that, Joseph reveals himself, they reunited, and now Jacob and the family are moving to Egypt. Our message today is entitled, An Ark in Egypt. And it refers to the way that God always provides for his people. A way of salvation, an ark, a way of of deliverance for his people. And this morning, we look at the move of Jacob's family to Egypt. Little did they know But God was already working his plan of deliverance for this family and preservation for this family by providing them a rich farmland, Goshen, where they were going to plant, literally, and and crops, (laughs) and their herds, and flourish and grow into a nation. You heard that in God's word. It was like their very own ark of safety and deliverance. They just didn't know it yet. And 400 years later, after an epic battle between a new pharaoh and God, and Moses would remember Joseph's Joseph's final words, and he would carry his bones up out of Egypt to bury in the promised land. But not only the bones, an entire nation would come out with Moses. As some estimate, a million strong that had been safely grown and preserved in an ark of safety and preservation in Egypt. So this morning, let's look at what this means, even relating it to baptism this morning. Sophia is going to be coming up to be baptized in a little bit. We're going to look at two aspects of this story, two aspects, and then tie it all together with our third point. So let's look at our first aspect of this story, that we see God's reassuring presence for his people. God, with this family, with Jacob, and with us too, reassures his people with the promises of his word that by grace, by grace he delivers his people. Now remember, remember, this family had just been reunited with their long-lost brother Joseph, who was second in command in, in Egypt, and now Jacob has received his Uh, his invitation, Jacob, his father, has received his invitation to move the entire family out of the promised land to a pagan Egypt. Joseph said this, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Get here quick. Come on, dad. Get the boys, get the kids, get the grandkids, get the flocks, get everything we need and get down here. Sounds good. But this would have been an absolutely overwhelming challenge for Jacob. If you, always, if you look online or search and look for what are the top stressors in life, do you know what's always near the top of the list? Yeah, you, oh, okay, you got it. Yeah, moving. Moving, you know that. Moving. Like next to uh, uh, death sometimes or public speaking. Um, <laughs> moving. It's a huge challenge whether it's moving off the family property that you've owned for decades or just moving five houses down as we did a few years back. (laughs) That was funny. Ever seen your piano roll down the street? I have. (laughs) It's not good for tuning. (laughs) 
or moving across a state line or from another country. Some of you have done that even. Moving is really hard. It's challenging. You got to pack. You got to schedule. You got to find a new home. You got to sell your old home. Got to find the new grocery stores, right? Only some of you think of that. I know, like, where's the closest grocery store? Now think of the logistics of moving an entire clan with livestock and all your possessions to a place where you know the locals will hate you. Canby's welcoming. We came in the great welcome. Going to Egypt, that's a different story. They'll hate you. And walking away, not only that, but from a land that God had promised your grandfather, this will all be yours someday. Is any wonder that God appeared in a vision to Jacob to say, do not fear. Do not fear. To his credit, Jacob and his family pick up and leave and obey before he has the appearance from God, the vision. But his worries and fear drive him to God, not away from God, and towards worship, the text says, if you saw it there in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba, if you remember back it's a, in our Genesis story, I didn't, so maybe you don't either, had a rich history with the patriarchs, as I was reading again this week. It was where Abraham was asked to have faith and sacrifice Isaac. It was where Isaac built his altar. And now it's here where Jacob was being asked to not fear and trust God like his father and grandfather were. How easy and naturally fear can sometimes come to us. There is not a single person in this room, every one of us, there's not a single person in this room, this side of eternity, that does not experience fear. Would you agree? Every one of us. And sometimes fear is good. You see your child running into the streets, and you fear because you know what could happen. It makes you hop up off that seat, holler, stop, don't. In the face of danger, it can be good and help at times. But the problem with fear and the problem that Jacob had to wrestle with and the problem we have to wrestle with is when fear becomes the lenses through which you view everything in your life and every decision in your life, the lens through which you view. When we do that, what does that do? And a lot of times fear comes at times of sorrow, pain, trial, tragedy, uncertainty, but when it comes, what we do is we take our real troubles and we compound them and add on to them all the what-ifs and all the uncertainty that fear brings about. And so we end up doubling what we're already going through maybe, maybe tripling. Compounds them, it distorts them, and only, it only adds on to the original problem or the original dilemma or the original challenge, that fear. It becomes a dirty filter. Jesus gives us a great example of dealing with fear, his own fear and suffering. He's about to, un to face the unthinkable cross, the wrath of God, the judgment of God for you and me, and some separation with the Father. When he says this, he says, behold, the hour is coming. The hour is his death. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, speaking to the disciples, and you will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, he said. The Father's with me. It's hard enough to suffer, but suffering alone, isn't that even worse? Feeling alone, feeling abandoned. Jesus didn't give in to that filter. He rejected that lens of fear, and, and he clung to the promises of God. You might all leave me. 
I might not know what tomorrow brings. You might not know what tomorrow brings. But the Father is with me. He clung to that. I'm not alone, he said to his disciples, even if you go home. And so too, God appears to Jacob with these four promises to let him know he's not alone to alleviate his fear. He says to him, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you into a great nation in this place. Don't be afraid. I'm going to go with you to Egypt. I'm always with you. Don't be afraid. I'll bring you up again. You won't be there forever. Don't we sometimes sit in our fear and suffering like it's going to be forever? It's going to be forever. It's going to be forever. Even if it's this entire life, that's a blip in eternity. It's not forever. Okay, third one. Do not fear. I'll bring you up again. It won't be forever. And then finally, don't fear. You're going to die, Jacob, peacefully with your family. And it was the faith in these promises, these four promises that God gave him and the graciousness of God to appear to him that propelled him to take the step of faith and action and go down into Egypt. And how many more promises do you think? Think about it. How many more promises do we have than Jacob or Joseph or Moses? We have have an immense treasure trove of promises. We have all of Christ's words and his life and his death and his resurrection and all the meaning that contains for us and the future prophecies of what's to come. Things that the Old Testament saints, that Jacob and Joseph, would have loved to see, but were only prophesying about and foreshadowing, we have. They had a little acorn tree. Guess what we have? The giant full or little uh, seed. We have the giant tree. They had the little seed. We've got the full bloom tree to look at and to feast upon, full of good fruit for us. But they have to become your filter. They have to become your perspective. They have to become your daily reality. It means you have to know them and rehearse them and recite them and believe them to battle fear, to propel obedience when it seems like obedience is insane. Sometimes it feels like that, that obedience is the last thing I want to do, especially if it means there might be some suffering on the other side of it. So the next morning, what does he do? He obeys after this night of worship and these visions with all his family, all his possessions. He, by faith, travels towards the border, but Jacob could not totally understand what God was up to. Some commentators have pointed out that the language of verses 5 through 7 is an intentional echo of the language used in the flood story. Let me say that again. That the language here used in this move, in verses 5 to 7, is meant to kind of Take us back to Noah and the ark and the flood story. Into Egypt, God says, come down into Egypt and bring all of the family. That's where he said to Noah, go down into the ark and bring all the family and all your possessions. What does an ark provide? Safety. Safety. What did it provide for Noah, I think, and, the, and his family and the animals of the earth? Safety, deliverance, a means of grace to transport and keep them tight and safe and secure. The raging floodwaters in Noah's day, these waters of judgment 
broke open on the earth and what was taking place. Noah and his family were safe inside that ark. Well, here, Jacob unknowingly and in a very unlikely place walks into hostile pagan territory and it is here that God will preserve and grow this people. Exodus 1-7, you know maybe the story later on. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them, overflowing with them. So much so, the Egyptians started saying, we we got a problem here. (laughs) We've got a problem. Part of God's larger plan was to save the family, was to grow the family in this ark of safety in Egypt of all unlikely places. They are the hope of the world in this little small microcosm because of the promised family, right? The Messiah is going to come from this family. If they die, we all die. We're not here today without Egypt, actually. Think about that. They're set inside this ark of incubation. And as they settle on the outskirts of Egypt, they're given some of the best farmland in this place called Goshen. It makes me think of the church in our ever-increasing hostile culture. We can learn from this. Can God grow us and flourish us even in a strange land? He's always done it for his people. That's kind of the way he has worked. Can he incubate us? Can he grow us and even use us in a hostile world that might be growing, that is, not might, that is growing increasingly hostile towards faith in Christ, towards obedience to Christ, towards the exclusivity of Christ, towards what he asks you to be and obey. Can we live in a world, and can he use us in a world that way? Yes, he can. Like I said, he's always done that for his people who were called all over the Bible, strangers, exiles, aliens, immigrants, I mean, that's what the people of God are in this world, too. And as Jacob and family arrive, let's look at the second aspect before we tie it all together. The second aspect of this story, Joseph now comes to see his father, and he descends from his place of grandeur to welcome his family to this gracious new home. We're down into the second half of this passage after all the catalog list of names of people that came with Jacob were listed. Joseph prepares as they arrive, but he doesn't just ride out and stroll out to meet them like he was just got up out of bed or just finished a meal. It's not casual at all. And you might think it'd be, he's got back with his brothers, brothers were back together, the 12 were back together but he doesn't do that. He actually prepares kind of like an entourage and arrives in style. Verse 29 says this, then Joseph prepared. There's great preparation taking place here. It's not casual or off the cuff. Prepared his chariot and he went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself, very formal. Not, what's up, dad? No, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. It's the language there the author uses, uh, the language of making an impression. You know, first impressions, 
and try to put on a good first impression. I'm not sure if that's what Joseph was doing here, but it, 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 it sounds of that. He makes an impression, the chariot. He presents himself. He prepares himself, probably surrounded by all kinds of servants. We're getting here this great picture of grandeur, of power, of overwhelming influence in this land. Surrounded by servants, as I said, the second most, and you know, maybe the most powerful man in Egypt. Dressed in clothing they never would have seen. Here come these wandering nomad Hebrews in front of this great entourage. This would have been a spectacle as Jacob and family waited for his arrival. They would have never seen anything like this. Like the country farm boy who drives into Portland for the first time as a kid. Or like flying into a big city at night. Maybe flown into LA or into Portland too or other big cities. You fly in and you're just like, whoa. I've never seen anything like that. A spectacle so overwhelming that gives you a sense of smallness in the face of this grandeur. That's the picture we're getting here, which makes the way Joseph greets them all the more special. He graciously descends his place of grandeur and he falls almost on his father's neck, weeping a good while, the story says. Remember, 20-some years since they'd seen each other. The humility of Joseph to jump from his chariot, men of respect don't do that, and weep with his father and on his father, men of power don't do that, to welcome them into this gracious new home, a safe ark in Egypt. Who else stepped from his place of grandeur? Who else stepped from his place of grandeur and influence and might and power to welcome us to a new gracious home? Jesus. Jesus did that. We don't go to him. He came to us. And yet it wasn't with a lot of pomp and circumstance, was it? He who created all things and was, and was sitting in sovereign power, ruling and reigning with his father, stepped from his grand chariot, and he entered humanity, and he came to save and welcome us home. He wept a lot too, didn't he? He was always weeping, and he was the most manly man that ever lived. To deliver us like an ark, to save us, There's a place in Philippians 2 that talks of Jesus' descent from grandeur. It says this, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't it amazing how Joseph has pointed us in so many ways to Jesus? It's incredible. It's incredible. Betrayed by his brothers, his closest. Sold for silver. A man of wisdom who saves the world from disaster at that time. And now in his humble descending and open arm welcome, we get a picture of Jesus entering our world too. And our pain and our suffering and becoming an ark for us. An ark. Hidden in him, we are saved from God's wrath. That's how he's our ark. The great hymn, Before the Throne of God above. One and with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid, there it is, with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. 
And Jacob, as he's in the face of Joseph now with his reunited weeping, Jacob responds to his temporal savior like Simeon. Do you remember in the Gospel of Luke responded to his eternal savior? Here's what Jacob said. Now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. His temporal savior. Here's Simeon. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. See, God was at work. God was working. God was doing things. Through his grace, he was saving a people. This is what he's always done for his people by grace. Let's tie it all together. From the ark to Egypt, from Jesus to baptism, it's all of grace. God's good pleasure and favor he showers upon his people that don't deserve it. When the world turned evil and Noah was the last righteous man on earth, God in grace provided an ark. They're delivered through the judgment on the earth. When God's people, the chosen family, are in danger and famine comes and there's nothing left and they're feeling like they're going to starve, the chosen family through whom the Savior would come, what happens? They enter another sort of ark, this place in Egypt, the land of Egypt. In a miracle, it's open to them so they can grow, grow and flourish in it. You know, here's why it's so amazing. This small little band of nomad desert wanderers was able to have the protection and prosperity of an Egyptian culture and land and live in the most fertile areas so they could plant crops, but they also lived on the outskirts of Egypt so they could remain distinct enough to become the people of God and grow their spiritual and national identity. Is that some mistake, do you think? No way, you're right. And now we come to baptism today. Do you know that Peter speaks of the flood and the ark as a type of baptism? It points us forward, he says, to Jesus rescuing us, not from the flood waters, but rescuing you and I from death. The thing that people fear the most. Death. 1 Peter 3, it's a very complex passage. We're not going to pack it all. We wouldn't have the time today. But Peter speaks of Noah, the ark, and the floodwaters as corresponding, is the word, to baptism. Like Noah was sealed up in that ark and delivered to safety through the waters, we too are sealed in Christ through faith. Protection, an ark through his death and burial and resurrection by faith, which baptism points us to. Baptism shows us that, and the passage says it's to be from a heart appealing to Christ. Today, the Burnhams are bringing Sophia to the waters of baptism. In some way, they're taking her down to Egypt. Not in the sense of taking her to a pagan land, of course. But in a sense of helping her be obedient to God's command of all Christians to be baptized. In that sense, to go where he wants us to go and to go where he calls us to go. And he calls us to go to the waters of baptism, to come down to the waters of baptism. And he calls every Christian to go down to the waters of baptism. We talked about Sophia's baptism last week. I didn't want to spring it on the church because it is a unique baptism. And we're going to talk about it again today with some similar words that I even said last week. Because it is unique for all of us. 
So I want to talk to you about it again before I have the Burnhams come up. The Burnhams and I have discussed and wrestled with this for some length of time. I think David's even going to talk about that. And our elders, we have too, and they were brought into the decision as well. This is a unique baptism. On the one hand, we talked and said last week, it's not an infant baptism. We don't practice that at our church. And Sophia is not an infant. But it's also not a typical believer baptism either with Sophia's limited communication. But as we said last week, that does not mean that Sophia does not speak, does it? As a pastor who's always practiced believer baptism and as a church that baptizes those who've made a credible profession of faith, this has kind of pushed my simple categories a little bit and caused me to take a wisdom-based approach to Sophia's baptism and her parents too, actually. Here's a few truths. Baptism doesn't regenerate you. The act itself of the waters don't save you. So that's not what we'll be doing for Sophia this week. Peter says in that passage, actually, that I quoted, he says, baptism doesn't save you like water just taking away dirt, like it's just some formality and the waters are magic. No, he says it's in the heart appeal in faith for the resurrection of Christ is what saves you. And so baptism is an obedient response to the work of Jesus that he's done in your heart. And we want to make clear today that Sophia is not saved also by being part of the Burnham family, just because David and Anna are Christians, right? They would agree with me on that. If Sophia is to be saved, it's like anyone born with a sinful nature, which is all of us. The Spirit must regenerate her and implant in her a faith, even if it's a childlike faith and expressed in unique and what we might judge limited ways. But to David and Anna, these limitations have not stopped them from having a sense that God has worked in Sophia's heart. Their prayer has been for her to be filled with the Spirit from the womb, which we know God did for John the Baptist. And they've testified to her sensitivity to the things of the Lord in the ways that she communicates with them. And they will give testimony and story this morning. We also talked about last week that she clearly has gifts from the Lord. I asked this last week, but now that we've got a lot more family and friends here at the Burnhams, how many of you have been blessed by Sophia? Yeah, pretty much everybody in the room that knows her. I realize this is a unique situation and it stretches our categories and mine a bit. It's not an infant baptism. It's not a typical believer baptism. It is unique, but as we said last week, Sophia, you are unique. You are unique. And so today is a unique day. But as Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And given that unique situation and David and Anna's integrity and credibility as longstanding members, we desire to move forward with this, trusting God and his wisdom. So I want to take a moment now. We're going to invite the Burnhams up to the front. David's going to come up, and I think Sophia and Anna are going to come down here in the chair. And we're going to talk a little bit. As we do this today, it is going to look a little different. We're not going to take Sophia all the way under the waters, but she's going to go into the steps in a little bit. We're going to talk first, and she's going to respond the way she's going to respond. <laughs> we will see as we get her up there, um, but David's going to have a time to share, and then we're going to bring her up and pray for her, uh, and I'll talk about some more details of what we're going to do. So come on up here, David. We're going to get you. Katie, can you grab one of those handhelds for us back there?
Let's, let me ask you guys a question first. Um, how long have you guys been at Bethany Church? Ten. Ten years. So kind of, I guess right before Sophia was born, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, your mom this morning was telling me and sharing with me um, how amazing this church was to you guys. Didn't really even know you guys and yet wrapped their arms around you in love. And so Bethany Church... Thank you. You are a testimony of God's love to Sophia. This is five years before I even got here. You were loving this family, not knowing them, not knowing what was going to come about for Sophia, and surely not foreseeing this day. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. I know they, mean, I know they feel the same way. So tell us a bit about Sophia's story. We don't have a ton of time, but we want to know a little bit. Some of you know a lot of it, but David, give us a little of Sophia's story. So um, some elements of Sophia's journey. So... Uh, Anna and Sophia had a little bit of a difficult pregnancy, and Sophia kind of had a little bit of a difficult start to life. Um, however, one of the things that we longed for as stuff with the pregnancy was unfolding, and this was, oh, really scary, we uh, started just longing that she would be filled with the Spirit from birth. We know that's not like necessarily a typical thing. It does happen in the Bible, you know, Samuel. John the Baptist, Jesus, so it's not like necessarily normative, but it's possible, and we thought, hey, if there's going to be anybody who's going to save her, it's going to be him. So we asked for that. Um, it might sound weird, but yeah, uh, that's what we asked for, and we kind of think she has, has the spirit. We are confident that she knows him. Hmm. Um, she's consistently appeared, even when she was very young, to be sensitive to the things of God. She has this real positive, sensitive response to the Spirit of God. Um, she's sensitive to correction, and she's really quick to forgive. She's also sensitive and has a negative response to the demonic and unclean spirits. Um, she's sensitive to prayer. I don't know if any of you have ever watched her worship the Lord. <laughs> um, it's pretty amazing. She just has a responsiveness to holy, uh, sanctified activities, sermons, books, music. Um, uh, she's, been, she's had a difficult journey, and uh, she's still trucking along, but <laughs> she has been given to us for our care and protection. Um, and we have experienced the Lord using her on her journey to challenge, enrich, provoke, and protect mm. us in our relationship with Jesus. Um, and just like this week and last week, many of you have raised your hands when Jeff just asked how many of you have been blessed by Sophia, and many of you have testified and do testify and bear witness to the work of God in her and through her. Um, we continue to pray for the preeminence of Christ in her life and that she would continue to grow in favor with God and with people. And we are, did you want to say this part? Oh, yes, we are confident that Sophia belongs to Jesus. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I love hearing that story. And I've gotten to walk with you guys the last five years on that journey. We've been talking about this for a few years, actually, four years, actually. This was not an overnight thing um, for us to arrive at. So... Tell us kind of how we got there. How have you guys arrived at this decision to baptize Sophia? Yeah. Um, 
Well, four or five years ago, we were up at a camp in Canada, an evangelical Lutheran camp that some of you may know this guy named Ken. Um, Ken Ratcliffe, he invited us to go up there, and we just kept Pastor, going up. Pastor Ken. Yeah, okay. Pastor Ken, yeah. Um, we went up there a number of years, and uh, four or five years ago, we were there, and it was during the morning session, and the, the guy teaching, he's an evangelical Lutheran, he asked us to share Sophia's story. So we did, and answered questions, and at lunchtime, he said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. I said, sure. And he said, have you ever considered baptizing Sophia? And I stopped and I said, no, I'm not a Lutheran. Um, so, um, uh, and that thought has never crossed my mind. So, you know, and I kind of, we kind of come from a believer's baptism tribe. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. And I said, so can you just talk to me about why you think that? And I can't remember everything he said, but the things that stood out to me, he said, baptism is a sacrament, but it's also a gift from the Lord to his children. And he says, and you're confident that Sophia is one of God's children. And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I seem pretty confident that Sophia is one of God's children. And I said, okay. And he said, so if baptism is a gift from one, for God's children, then why would you withhold it from her? Hmm. And that question has plagued us for the past four or five years. Um, and so we talked to you about it. And you joined us in the journey. And um, I, yeah, so we are confident that Sophia belongs to the Lord. He's, she's his. Um, he's not lost her. She belongs to him. And um, while for many of us, like Anna and I included, baptism comes with a public profession of faith, we believe also that baptism is God's work. Um, we see God working in her and calling her and marking her as his own. And we believe this baptism is a picture of that marking. Um, Baptism is a step of obedience. It's a sacrament or an ordinance, as you say, but baptism is also a gift, and we, we don't want to withhold it from her. And we've had a growing conviction over the past few years that the Lord is leading us in this. Um, you know, Jesus' instructions in Matthew 28 are to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always. And we have been doing the teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We've, we've been doing that for... With know, Sophia, you mean? Yeah, with Sophia, yeah. and we will continue to do that. And so we feel convicted that it's now time to do the baptizing part. Mm -hmm. um, so the other day, you had, you've asked a lot of great questions of us as we prepared this. And um, the other day as we were thinking about this, Sophia was listening to... One of her favorite Lauren Daigle songs, because if you know Sophia, she loves Lauren Daigle. And the song's called I Am Yours. And the words leading up to the chorus, it says, So I rest in your promises, now I am sure of this, I am yours. Mm. No power is strong enough to separate me from your love, I am yours. So let the waters rise, I will stand as the oceans roar. Let the earth shake beneath me, let the mountains fall. You are God over the storm, and I am yours. Mm. And I just think it really describes, she, I mean, she loves the song. It describes her journey, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. So those are, that's everything I wrote. Okay, we're done. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, David. Um, our hearts are with you in this um, and with Sophia in this. So Sophia 
Is there, is there anything you wanted to say? Let me give you a minute. Sometimes I know you like to think and respond. Is there anything you want to say, Sophia? Kiss for mommy, that's a good thing to say. She says, get me in the water. It's warm, Sophia. Well, we knew Sophia, we wanted to give her an opportunity knowing she might say something, she might not, and that's okay. We Mm -hmm. want to give her that opportunity because she does hear and she is listening and she knows she's now in the front row with all these spotlights on her. So we're going to take her up. She may get nervous. She was, we, we were practicing only last night, and it's hard for her to be up on the edge of something. She feels like, I think, a sense of, uh, what did you say, just not secure maybe as much. Yeah. So we're going to work through that. Um, we're not going to take that as a, as a um, state of her heart. This is a unique thing for Sophia, and she has a unique experience. But Anna's going to get her ready. Why don't you go ahead and do that, can Anna? I, can I pray for her? Oh, yeah, we're going to pray. Yeah, let's pray first. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, David. Let's pray for Sophia. Father, I praise you for lending Sophia to us, um, for making her part of our family, part of the Bethany family. Thank you for the care and protection that you've given us through this little girl. She's not so little anymore, I guess. Um, Jesus, I thank you and praise you for knowing and calling her God. She is yours. I ask God that Sophia would continue to grow in wisdom and favor with God and with people. I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to keep her as your own, close to your heart, and that you, Jesus, would be preeminent in her life. Please incline her heart towards you, Jesus. And I ask, Holy Spirit, would you fill Sophia fresh today in a new and powerful way? Would you give her power to speak and tell her story, bearing witness to who you are and what you've done for her? And I pray today that she would hear your voice, that you... (laughs) You are my daughter, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for this gift. Amen.